Yeah, you know, a lot of people, yeah, you know, we all say we love the Bible and, and we talk, we venerate our Bibles, and of course we venerate the Word of God. But what is the Bible? And, and most Christians tend to have a Bible version which, which they love above all others, and which to them, as they are often taught to believe, represents the inerrant Word of God. But that is, is that a healthy Christian attitude in as much as Christians are urged by Scripture in nearly any translation to prove and to scrutinize all things? We've been raised to taught and taught to love, uh, to love our King James Version or, or perhaps Luther's Version. And, and much esteem is held for these books among the German and the English peoples. These versions contributed so much to Western culture that they even helped to build and to unify our very languages. But are they really what we should consider Scripture? Should they be accepted blindly as if they were inerrant? The King James Version has thousands of known and demonstrable translations, mistranslations. It can clearly be demonstrated in comparing the King James Bible to the Greek that nouns were translated into verbs, that verbs were translated into nouns, into nouns, and that even the grammatical object and subject of some sentences were reversed. Could these errors possibly be the inspiration of Yahweh? Or rather... Do Christians not have an obligation to examine all of these things? And, and here I'll discuss the possible avenues of investigation, since most Christians seem to be ignorant of the sources of their dearest treasure, which is, or should be, their Bible. Yeah, you know, we have quite a few fragments of Scripture what we have, for instance, the Silver Scrolls. These are the earliest known Bible fragments. They were found a decade ago when it was announced the discovery of these tiny silver scrolls, little amulets that, that were found in Jerusalem in a layer which has been ascertained to predate the final Babylonian deportations of Judah. They're per perhaps from from the 7th century B.C. Now, now, these fragments contain texts found at Numbers 6, 24 through 26, and, and, and they say, May Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh cause His face to shine upon you and grant you peace. So, so we see that people were, that, that the Scripture is definitely proven to exist before the Babylonian deportations of Judah, and Christians know that, but a lot of non-Christians might scoff at that. They can't scoff at the scientific archaeological evidence. We also see in, in the Silver Scrolls the existence of the Tetragrammaton. As, as Christian identists would use it, the, the YHVH letters of Hebrew that stand for the name of Yahweh. We have something like, uh, we, we have other examples of ancient copies of Scripture. We have the Nash Papyrus, which consists of four fragments containing approximately 24 lines. 
including a section of the Ten Commandments, which are from Exodus and Deuteronomy. The Nash Papyrus probably dates to around the 2nd century B.C. And, and this is just one other example of many ancient papyri fragments and pieces of the Scripture, which are discovered by archaeology over the years. And, and while none of them are really significant by themselves, the total body of such findings is a testament to the wide dissemination of Scripture at an early time, but also to what the Scripture may say at an early time. All such fragments as these should be evaluated, recorded, and considered a general part of the overall scriptural record. They all give us insight into the readings of Scripture at an early time. I'm going to go through some other um, early versions of scripture that are close that, that are closer to the original languages than our current bibles and and these are all important in our biblical studies and, and most people are are oblivious to their existence or, or these things are a mystery to many people so so i'd like to take some time to, to explain them we have something called the aramaic targums which, which Clifton and I, Clifton and Heiser and I have both referred to very often in our writings, especially on the book of Genesis. The Aramaic Targums are interpretations of the Hebrew Old Testament into Aramaic, which was a language that was very similar to Hebrew, but it was a different dialect. And, and so some words, that there were different words, different forms of words, Sort of like um, like the Queen's English that, that our British friends speak and, and the trash English that us Americans speak, right? Which is nothing like the proper Queen's English. And, and that, that would be the difference between Hebrew and Aramaic to some extent. While some of these Aramaic targums were done at a very early time, and some are dated by scholars to as early as the 2nd century A.D., no actual manuscripts exist which are quite that old. However, it's clear that the need for targums or translations of the scripture for the people in the assembly was evident as early as the time of Nehemiah. When people were already forgetting, the common people were already forgetting their Hebrew in, 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 change, in exchange for Aramaic. Nehemiah 8.8 reads thusly, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them, meaning the people in the assembly, to understand the reading. So, so at that early time, people had already needed a, a, an interpretation of the original Hebrew scriptures. And, and that's mostly because they were taken away to Babylon in, in 586 B.C., where Aramaic was commonly spoken, they learned Aramaic, and, and when they returned to Jerusalem, a lot of them, the common people, had forgotten Hebrew. While two of the known Targums were preserved in the Babylonian Talmud, and so people may scorn them just for that reason, there is one important Targum which was not, that, that was preserved independently. Talking about the Christian era, Bruce Metzger says in an in, in the article, Important Early Translations of the Bible, found in a publication called Biblia Sacra, 
January 1993, page 35, that during the same period, the Targum tradition continued to flourish in Palestine. In addition to fragments and citations that have been collected, the Palestinian Targum to the Pentateuch is found primarily in three forms. The two that have been most studied are the Pseudo-Jonathan Targum, and it's called Pseudo-Jonathan because it's been attributed to a writer named Jonathan, but that can't be proven. And the Fragmentary or Jerusalem Targum, which contains renderings of only approximately 850 biblical verses, phrases, or words. In the mid-20th century, a neglected manuscript in the Vatican Library, which is identified as Neophyte One, was discovered to be a nearly complete copy of the Palestinian Targum to the Pentateuch. Though it's claimed by some to have been copied in the 16th century, its text has the distinction of being the earliest form of the Palestinian Targum, and some scholars dated to as early as the first or century, second centuries A.D. It is somewhat less paraphrastic than the Pseudo-Jonathan, and its explanatory editions are fewer in number and more terse in expression. The wide divergences among the Targums clearly indicate that they are unofficial, in that their text was never fixed. There are no reliable data as to who the authors and compilers were, under what circumstances and for what specific purposes they labored, and how literary transmission was achieved. One of the more important Targums is the Targum of Ankylos, which is believed to be at least as early as the 4th or 5th centuries A.D., and to be more closely related to an earlier Aramaic dialect. All of these are very important to our understanding of Old Testament scriptures, and we'll see that when I discuss the Masoretic text, and the formation of the Masoretic text upon which most modern Bibles are based. It is evident that the Targums are the earliest translations of scripture. However, it is not to be taken for granted that the Targums we have are identical to the earliest of the Targums. The Samaritan Pentateuch, which I'm sure you've all heard of, surviving texts of the Samaritan Pentateuch are at least as old as the earliest surviving Masoretic texts, and maybe even older, but the Jews would contend over this. The earliest surviving Masoretic texts are not really that old. These texts of the Samaritan Pentateuch reflect a tradition which probably dates to the 2nd or 3rd centuries B.C., where we see the building of a temple at Mount Gerizim, as is described by Josephus. And it's actually mentioned in the New Testament in, in John chapter 4, but not by name. The modern so-called Samaritan Christians... I would not consider them Christians because they're basically Arabs, possess something called the Abisha Scroll, which they claim is 3,000 years old. But the few scholars who have seen and worked with it can only date parts of it to as early as the 11th or 12th century A.D. and the rest of it to later periods. There are several modern-day fools, for lack of a better word, who claim to be experts in Paleo-Hebrew. And we have to be very wary of those people. While they cite the existence of the Abisha Scroll as evidence that Paleo-Hebrew manuscripts actually do exist today, 
The Abisha scroll is not really written in Paleo-Hebrew, but in a Samaritan script, which evolved from an older post-exilic Hebrew script, but it's not the original Paleo-Hebrew. Self-proclaimed Paleo-Hebrew experts have never themselves seen the Abisha scroll, and they have never seen any other substantial Paleo-Hebrew manuscript to compare it to. However, the Samaritan Pentateuch, even though it comes from a later script, is still as old as the Masoretic text, and it does give us some insight into early books of the Bible, where, where it differs from the Masoretic text. I'd like to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls next. And, and the following is going to be a quote from sections 43 and 68 of a paper I wrote a few years ago, William Fink versus the Paul Bashers. It is posted on Christogenia. Quote, First, there is no substantial evidence that the Dead Sea Scrolls were written by Essenes, which is a commonly repeated but, but uns, unsubstantiated belief. Reading the professional archaeology journals, scholars and academics refer to the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls as the Qumran sect, or the Dead Sea sect. And this is a much more proper identification, since a definite identification of these people with any of the historically known sects of Judea cannot be made with any high degree of assurance. Most of the Dead Sea Scrolls fall into one of several categories, and I'll generally identify them as follows. A. Copies or targums, meaning translations, of biblical books. B. Copies or targums of known apocryphal books, like Tobit or Judith. C. Sectarian commentaries on biblical books. D. Prayers and prophecies peculiar to the Dead Sea sect. E. Scrolls of instruction for and governance of the members of the Dead Sea sect. There are some other miscellaneous documents, such as the calendar documents or the copper scroll. The copper scroll is a description of buried treasure, which the sect supposedly had hidden in various places. Those, those, those scrolls really don't fit into any of the first five categories. Most of the Dead Sea Scrolls are numbered in a fashion where you'll see a number and then the letter Q and another number. And the first number is the number of the cave where the scroll was said to be found. And the, that number always goes 1 through 11. And the second number is the serial number of the scrolls or fragments from each particular cave. So, so 1Q358 would be fragment 358 found in cave 1. Additionally, many of the notable scrolls also have a familiar name, like the copper scroll I just mentioned, and that is 3Q15. Josephus, in his description of the Essenes, found in Wars, Book 2, Chapter 8, is very much like Luke's description of the first Christians found in Acts chapter 2 verses 44 and 45 and verses 32 through 37 of Acts chapter 4. But that doesn't mean 
necessarily that the first Christians were Essenes or that the first Essenes or, or the Essenes were the first Christians. And while some of the sectarian documents found at Qumran do indicate that the possessions of the sect members in the dead, of the Dead Sea Scrolls were controlled by the sect and not by the individual, and, and an example of that is in 4Q Rule of the Community, which is identified as 4Q256 and 4Q258, it may appear that the Dead Sea sect were Essenes, but such communal societies were certainly not novel, and they occurred elsewhere. For instance, Theodorus Siculus, the Greek historian, said of certain colonists at Lepara, which is a place on Sicily, that they, quote, took over the cultivation of the islands which they had made the common property of the community. Their possessions also they made common property, and living according to the public mess system, they passed their lives in this communistic fashion for some time. That's found in a Loeb Library edition of Theodorus Siculus, volume, book 5, chapter 9. I'm sorry. Theodorus wrote from about 50 B.C., so it's quite possible that other groups besides the Essenes lived in a communal fashion. And this way of life was known among both Greeks and Hebrews. Others of the Qumran documents, which are the Dead Sea Scrolls, suggest that the people there did not truly live in a communal manner. That this 4Q instruction, which is a scroll that discusses the borrowing of necessities and advises of the need to repay such loans as quickly as possible. These are not, they don't seem to be Essene teachings, since in a community where all things are held in common, there should be no need for borrowing or to make repayment for what one requires. This is especially true if the Qumran sect was as wealthy as the treasures which are listed on the Copper Scroll purports it to be. So, so that's a background on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and I'd like to get into the, the content of some of the scrolls. The War Scroll, which is found in, in um, 4Q491 through 497, it, it's actually several scrolls, and, and some others, is peculiar to the Qumran sect. And it was written by a vain and false prophet who described a grandois apocalyptic scenario which depicted a final battle between the remnant of Israel in Palestine and the quote-unquote empire of the Kittim, which was the name that the sect gave to the Romans. Kittim is an ancient name for Cyprus. They also sometimes called the empire of the Romans the empire of Belial. This battle that they imagined was to end with the aggrandizement of the remnant of Israel in Palestine, which they saw as their own sect, and with the fall of Rome. The sect interpreted parts of Isaiah chapter 10 in the same manner. And since the Qumran sect, so, so we basically see that apocalyptic literature is nothing new, right? And, and a sect believing that it is the remnant is nothing new also. We have to be careful not to fall into these same traps as our predecessors. The sect interpreted parts of Isaiah chapter 10 in, in that very apocalyptic fashion. Now, now, since the Qumran sect 
knew nothing of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. And they even mentioned the city on several occasions in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The War Scroll, therefore, requires a dating for the Qumran sect, which was somewhere between Pompey's conquest of Judea, where it was subjected to Rome, approximately 70 B.C., and the revolt from Rome, which began about 65 A.D. and resulted in Jerusalem's destruction in 70 A.D., which is a period, actually, of about 132 years. Since the scrolls lack mention of any contemporary historical figures or specific historical events, I don't know anything by which the scrolls can be dated more precisely than by the attitudes and, and the reflection of, of the interpretation of prophecy found in the war scroll. Now, now, there was a fourth large sect in Judea, aside from the Essenes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. That was the sect of Judas the Galilean, who Joseph has said that Joseph has said that, that sect was noted for their refusal to heed any authority but God, and that they inspired revolt against Rome. And Josephus describes them in Antiquities, Book 18, Chapter 1. And, and this is in such agreement with the Qumran sect's apocalyptic documents that I believe that this sect is as good a candidate for Qumran and probably better than the Essenes. And I'm personally convinced that the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls are the sect of Judas the Galilean, which Josephus describes. One thing is certain. There is no mention of Christ or of anything Christian in the Qumran scrolls. And even if the sect had heard about Christianity, they made no mention of it. Even if Essenes were the first Christians, and if the people of Qumran were Essenes, the people of Qumran were not Christians. The people of Qumran were still awaiting their Messiah, who would lead them in the destruction of the Roman Empire, as it is evident in, in the eschatological scroll, 4Q Sefer Ha Milhama, which is identified as 4Q285, and in the war scroll, and in many places elsewhere. The Qumran sect's post-apocalyptic New Jerusalem scroll, which is parts of which are found in 1Q32, 2Q24, and, and a series of other scrolls from other caves, talks about Passover sacrifices and offerings, which tells me that, and, and it places an emphasis on ritual purification, which tells me that they're not Christians, because after the baptism of John, we see Christ rejecting ritual purification before the Pharisees. For instance, in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. The Qumran sect while anti-Roman and separatist, clung to traditional Judaism. They weren't Pharisees and they weren't Sadducees, since they believed in spirits and the continued life of the soul. So that rules the, Sarisee, the Sadducees out. The Sadducees fully rejected those things. Compare Acts chapter 23, verse 8, to Antiquities, book 18, chapter 1. So it should be apparent that the Dead Sea Scrolls even though they may have been produced during the time of Paul of Tarsus, that late, 
which is not necessarily so. And, and since they were surely not Christian, nor were they anti-Christian, they apparently had no knowledge of Christ and no knowledge of the writings of Paul. The Dead Sea Scrolls are an enigma to most people. Most people will never have the time or the initiative to read them all. And, and the fullest publication that I've seen of the scrolls is Discoveries in the Judean Desert by Oxford University Press. And that's 38 volumes the last time I read about it. The, um, the sectarian manuscripts of the Dead Sea Scrolls, once they've been separated and distinguished from the biblical merit, manuscripts, once that's done, it is evident that we have a very important early witness to most of the extant Hebrew text of the Bible. And the commentaries on biblical books found among the scrolls are also very important because they give us insight into some of the things that a non-Pharisaical sect in Jerusalem thought about some of the Old Testament. While the Dead Sea Scrolls and their commentaries themselves are not entirely perfect, they are certainly the oldest manuscripts that we have of significant portions of the Scripture. Now, a lot of good portions are also missing. Genesis chapter 3, most of it's missing. Genesis 4.1, it's missing. Whether it's missing because the fragments weren't found or because the, the Israel, the, the Israelis, the false Israelites, had them locked up for 25 years and concealed from the public, it is an is a entirely, you know, it's a matter that will never resolve. But some very key portions of Scripture are missing in the Dead Sea Scrolls. However, there are, there are huge portions of Genesis, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and, and, and Deuteronomy that are very important, and we have to consider them a full part of Scripture. They're much earlier than any of the Masoretic texts. The Dead Sea Scrolls have often been abused by people with an agenda who need something to point to in order to support some usually false idea and know that the likelihood of of having their assertions investigated is quite slim. But every well-meaning and investigating and, and proving Christian, every Christian who would follow through with, with the, the exhortation we have to examine all things should have a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls in his library. I'd like to discuss the Septuagint. Like the Masoretic text and, and the New Testament text that we have, the Septuagint has long been preserved in various codices. However, we have copies of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of Old Testament scripture, probably done during the 3rd century B.C. We have copies of it which predate the Masoretic text and other texts by many centuries. The Breton translation of the Septuagint is based on the Codex Vaticanus. And some alternate readings are supplied in the notes there from the Codex Alexandrinus. These are 4th and 5th century A.D. codexes. I employ in, in my own studies the Hatch and Redpath concordance to the Septuagint, 
Well, which is a concordance very much like Strong's, except it's entirely in Greek. And it tells you every occurrence of every Greek word in, in Septuagint scripture. And, and that gives readings from both of those manuscripts, plus several other ancient manuscripts of the Septuagint. There are also many such codices, there are many other such codexes of the Septuagint which are known to us, and parallel Bibles which contained columns of Hebrew, Greek, and other languages have been made at least from the time of origin, which is the 2nd century A.D. And the Hatch and Redpath Concordance to the Septuagint includes readings from Origen's Hexapla. He made his own parallel Bible. The Septuagint covered much criticism over the years with the Jews in desperate support of the Masoretic text, leveling all sorts of accusations against it. So quite sadly, it has fallen into total disuse by the Western churches. Now, with the discovery and inspection of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it has been found that not only have fragments of the Septuagint been discovered among those scrolls, but also the Hebrew scriptures of the scrolls are often much closer to the Septuagint than to the Masoretic text. Not always, but often. The important and often cited messianic prophecy found in Isaiah 9-6, however, is quite different from the Septuagint. And in that one verse, the Dead Sea Scrolls agree with the King James reading of the Masoretic text. Also interesting is that the Dead Sea Scrolls contained fragments of the Greek which was identical to the Septuagint, except that the fragments of Greek in the Dead Sea Scrolls contained the Tetragrammaton Yahweh instead of the Greek title Curios, where the name of God appears. In further defense of the Septuagint, it is without a doubt the most often quoted source of Old Testament scripture by the original writers of the New Testament. It's not the only source, because it, the, the quotes of the Old Testament and the New Testament do not agree 100% with the Septuagint, but they mostly agree with the Septuagint. I would say 75%. Now, some, that there's one passage in the, in the New Testament quoted from the Old that only agrees with the Aramaic Targums. And, and that's where Paul writes in Romans of Christ that he ascended into heaven and delivered gifts or, or gave gifts to men. That only agrees with the Aramaic Targums. Now, there are some caveats about the Septuagint. And, and the caveats are matters of translation. Because since Every translation, especially a prophecy, is by necessity partly an interpretation. And while the original prophets are inspired by Yahweh, but not necessarily the translators, therefore I would hesitate to, to dismiss the prophetic books of the Masoretic text. Rather, I would have to maintain them as a guide and a clue 
to what the original text was used by the Septuagint translators. Another caveat is that many of the names translated in the Septuagint reflect the Hellenic period common names for people that are not the ancient Hebrew names. And many of those are not fair equivalents because the Greeks were wont to call people after their geography and not after their race. That is why in, in one in, in one scripture in Mark, we, we see Mark calls a certain woman a Syrophoenician. That's from the Greek viewpoint, where Matthew, in chapter 25, calls that same woman a Canaanite. That is from a Hebrew racial viewpoint, because the Greeks never used the word Canaanite to describe any geographical area or any race of people. The last caveat about the Septuagint is that it's the official Greek version of the Second Temple period. And there is little doubt that Hebrew texts were already corrupt by that time, for which I would have to quote Jeremiah 8.8, 8, which says that, I'll paraphrase it, you think you have the law of Yahweh, the lying scribes have already turned it into a lie. Another important valuable source to scriptural insight, is the histories, I'm sorry, the histories of Josephus. The real value in the works of Josephus is that his histories provide an excellent, and I believe, a very honest account of Jerusalem from the rise of the Maccabees, about 156 B.C. perhaps, through the usurpation of the kingdom by Herod, from 40 to 36 B.C., up to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. For Judean history, before the period of the Maccabees, Josephus relied on the same books of the Bible that we have with us today. There were some huge gaps in Josephus, just like there are huge gaps in the biblical record, from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah to the time of the Maccabees, which is about 300 years. Very little is known of Judea in those 300 years. Even from secular Greek sources, I have very little information of Judea in those 300 years. But it's often apparent that the scriptures for the early books of the Bible, from which Joseph is quoted, because he followed them all through his antiquities of the Judeans, that Josephus's copy of Scripture was a much better copy of the Hebrew than any of the Hebrew copies which we have now. Except that there's one more caveat, and that's that Josephus was a Pharisee, and his learning, to a great extent, reflects the learning of the Pharisees. And such learning, even though I believe Josephus was an honest man, such learning clearly affected his interpretations of the early books of the Bible, which are described in antiquities. Yet the works of Josephus, like the Septuagint and like the Dead Sea Scrolls, helps us to fill large voids which are left to us by a deficient Masoretic text, which I will finally come to discuss. The Masoretic text and all other Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible 
belong to the 10th century or later. Some of, that means they're, they're barely a thousand years old. Some of these manuscripts are claimed to be dated earlier. However, even the textual critics consider those dates to be either due to intentional fraud or to an uncritical transcription of the dates of older manuscripts. For instance, a codex of the former and later prophets, which is in the Karaite synagogue in Cairo, is claimed to date to 895 A.D., but most scholars assert that it can be dated only to the 11th, or some dated even as late as the 13th century. The Cambridge Manuscript, number 12, is dated to A.D. 856, and scholars claim that it's really a 13th century work. There's a date attached to the St. Petersburg Pentateuch of 489 A.D., and that's rejected as utterly impossible, and I have to agree. There's no way that Pentateuch in St. Petersburg can date to 49 A.D. once one understands the history of the Masoretes and the history of St. Petersburg. In all likelihood, the earliest Masoretic manuscripts are actually the Prophetarium Postorium Codex Babylonicus Petropolitanus, which is authentically dated to 916 A.D. The St. Petersburg Bible, transcribed by one Samuel ben Jacob, is dated to 1009 A.D. And the Codex Oriental 4445, which is in the British Museum, is dated by scholars to A.D. 820 to 850. And if that is accurate, that would be the oldest living manuscript of the Masoretic text. But we see how recent that is compared to the Dead Sea Scrolls, compared to Josephus, and compared to the manuscripts we have which survive from the Septuagint. The King James and all of our popular Bibles are based on that Masoretic text not on the older manuscripts. Now, the Masorah is not only a text, but it's also a commentary on a text, which was formulated by Jewish rabbis from the 6th to the 9th centuries. With it, these rabbis sought to regulate the content of the Scripture and to use it as a rule that they used their Masorah as a rule to determine just what would be their official text. That's the Old Testament we have in the King James. The commentary itself was left out of the King James. But it has found its way into Judeo-Christianity in other forms. One of them is the notes to the Companion Bible. Bullinger was a friend of the Zionists. He was a friend of Theodore Herzl who's considered the father of modern Zionism. Bullinger's companion Bible notes are not Bullinger's. It can be demonstrated that they are based entirely on the Masorah, the comments of the rabbis from the 6th to the 9th centuries A.D. So, so Bullinger is no worse, he's no better than Schofield. Bullinger and Schofield and, and certain other early Christian, Judeo-Christian commentators actually brought us the best religion the Jews could buy. 
That's what Judeo-Christianity is. I have some sound Old Testament interpretation for scriptures, for, Christ, for, for Christians. And, and because of the fact that none of the witnesses which we currently have available for the Old Testament scripture are perfect by themselves. We need all the witnesses that we can gather in order to assist us with scriptural interpretation. Does the scripture itself not say that every matter is established upon the testimony of two witnesses or three? Therefore, studying the Old Testament, we need the Masoretic text, but we also need the Septuagint. We also need Josephus, and we also need the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we should use even more than these, whenever we get the opportunity. But whenever. But whenever we examine the Old Testament, the soundest practice for Christians is to examine it through the lens of understanding in the New Testament. Because the words of our Redeemer. And his apostles are the most trustworthy, and they themselves were much closer to an understanding of the ancient scriptures than we could ever be today. So now, with that, I'll turn our attention to the extant witnesses attesting those words. The attestation of the New Testament manuscripts, uh, I'm sorry, of the New Testament in early manuscripts, is incredible. There are literally thousands of ancient Greek manuscripts and fragments which are known to exist throughout Europe and the Middle and Near East, which have been handed down through monasteries through the ages or found by archaeologists. In addition, there are also thousands of known ancient manuscripts which contain translations of the Greek into Latin, Syriac, Armenian, or other languages. By comparison, all other famous works of antiquity have remarkably scant attestation from ancient manuscripts. We have only a very few manuscripts of any of the classics that are over a thousand years old or over two thousand years old. And virtually none of them can be dated so close as to when they were first written as the New Testament manuscripts which we have. Now now let me take a little diversion from my planned paper and, and say that a lot of people would think or would have you believe that the New Testament was originally written in Aramaic. That is a lie. Every book of the New Testament was originally written in Greek, while some Aramaic was spoken at times by Christ and the apostles. They were all bilingual, but they wrote the New Testament in Greek. The internal evidence proves that overwhelmingly. The earliest Aramaic scriptures that we have date not before the 4th century. They were all 
translations, and this is admitted in the histories and writings of the earliest Christian writers, even those Christian writers who were Syrian and who engaged in the translations. We have their writings. So don't let the Jews fool you. The Hebrews of Palestine fully engaged in the Greek language and culture that the Jews would want you to believe they were separate from. We had Hellenists and Hebrewists, and that's evident in the book of Acts, and that is true. There were men who were Hellenists who followed Greek dress and customs, and there were men who clung to Hebrew dress and customs. However, they all spoke Greek, and they were all fluent in it. Of the New Testament manuscripts which are extant, the ancient ones, the most notable are the Great Uncials. The Great Uncials are manuscripts, surviving manuscripts, that were written on parchment, a material made from the skins of animals, and therefore much more durable than the brittle papyrus, which is made paper made from a plant. Paul mentions parchments at 2 Timothy 4.13. So we see that he possessed some. We have parchment uncials which were preserved to us, handed down over the years, which date back to the 4th century. Among these are the Codex Sinaiticus, which is actually recently discovered in a trash bin, the Codex Vaticanus, and, and we have also several 5th century uncials, which are the Codex Alexandrinus, the, the Alexandrian tradition, which I don't feel too highly of, the Codex Ephraim Siri, the Codex Bizai, and, and there are many others that all date to around the 5th century. In addition to the ancient codexes, archaeologists have in various places found ancient papyri manuscripts, usually consisting only of fragments many which date to as early as the 2nd and 3rd centuries A.D. One of the most notable is P45. The papyri manuscripts are given a number by scholars so that they can be referred to and cited in academic journals and books. In P45, there survives large parts of the four Gospels and the Acts, P45 dates to the 3rd century and currently resides in the Austrian National Library in Vienna. Now, now, there are many more papyri older than P45, but they don't contain such a great amount of the scripture. Another papyrus, P46, is dated to around 200 A.D. It contains much of Paul's letters from Romans through Hebrews, and is currently kept at the library of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. The King James Version of the Bible. The politics surrounding the translation of the King James Version of the Bible is not really at all as important to me as the manuscripts which were used in the making of the translation and the efficacy of the translation when it's compared to the original Greek. Let me limit the discussion to the fact that there were other English Bibles before the King James, 
But the King James Bible was purposely translated to be the official biblical text of the government and its fledgling Anglican church. And its language was deliberately constructed in a manner which made it appear that the Bible had actually decreed the ecclesiastical structuring of such an official church priesthood and a bureaucratic hierarchy in which the Anglican church was organized. But even without that, since all translation is in necessity partly interpretation, it is important to take both history and the biblical context into account while translating. In this area, I think that today we have a great advantage over the King James translators, who did not have the benefit of 19th century archaeology and the knowledge of history which we have available now. The universalism of those original English and German translations is mostly due to the limited knowledge of history and the need for the translators to squeeze themselves into the covenants of Yahweh, our God. Therefore, the only valid perspective in biblical translation can be the Christian identity perspective. If you don't have it, you can't translate the Bible properly. It was Erasmus, a priest, the clerically illegitimate son of a priest, born in 1466, who was primarily responsible for putting together what was eventually the manuscript of Beza, which the King James was originally based upon. Other modern New Testament translations are based upon the later Elzevir manuscript, the self-proclaimed Textus Receptus, and we'll see that in a minute. Erasmus used manuscripts dating from the 11th through the 15th centuries in his endeavor. He eventually published five editions of his manuscript before his death in 1536. It is a well-documented fact that Erasmus either included or left out readings from older manuscripts which fit or did not fit his particular theology. Following Erasmus, Robert Stephanus published four editions of Greek texts from 1546 to 1551. Stephanus' editions agitated the Romish Catholics, and he had to leave Paris to continue his work in Geneva. Stephanus' later editions agreed with Erasmus to a great extent. However, by this time, Erasmus' Greek text had already been gaining quite a following as having been providentially appointed. So we see just how early that error got into the minds of the churchmen. It's the original words of God that are inspired by God. Men have really screwed them up since then. Stephanus used a wider collection of manuscripts in his New Testament publication, placing alternate readings in the margins. Some scholars suspect that some of the alternate readings are from the Codex Bezae of a 5th century great uncle, 
which I personally find to be quite unreliable when compared to all of the other early codexes and papyri. Not long after Stephanus, editions of the New Testament Greek were published by Theodore Beza, a disciple and a successor to Calvin. Beza printed four Greek New Testament editions up to 1598. In the third edition, printed in 1582, Beza listed his sources, among whom were Stephanus, a Syriac version published by a Jew, an Arabic and a Latin version of Scripture, and his own Codex Bezai, I'm sorry, Codex Bezai, which is named for Theodore Beza, and the Codex Claromontanus, which is a 6th century manuscript closely related to the Codex Bezai. Beza had obtained the ancient codexes, the Bezai and the Claromontana, Claromontanus, from a monastery in Clermont in northern France. So that's why they're named after Beza and after the monastery. One item of note is that Beza defended the inclusion of Mark 16, 9 through verse 20, which is a section of scripture that even the Latin translator Jerome had condemned, and which is a section of scripture that is, it's highly evident that this was added to Mark in the Codex Bazaar. With the Erasmus, Stephanus, and Beza editions of the Greek New Testament, all competing for recognition among scholars. A family of Dutch printers named Elzevir joined the fray and published editions of the New Testament in 1624 and in 1633. In the second edition, the 1633 edition, it is here in the preface where the words Textus Receptus appear. And this is believed to be the first place in which they appear in relation to the New Testament. So we see that the words, Textus Receptus, those words are a printer's boast. They're not official words. They're a boast from a printer so that he could convince people to purchase his edition of the New Testament. The second edition of Elzevir eventually became the Textus Receptus on the European continent. But by that time, the third edition of Stephanus had become the preferred Greek New Testament in England. As Bede also attests, early Anglo-Saxon monks and priests had already made translation of parts of the Bible when Wycliffe made his first translation from Latin into English, which appeared in 1382. Tyndale, born in 1485, became attached to the Reformation and printed his first New Testament editions from Germany in 1525 through 1528. Following Tyndale and using much of his work was Coverdale, who made an English translation of the Latin Bible in 1537 and again in 1539 under Cromwell. Cromwell made that the official Bible of the Church of England. During the reign of Elizabeth, two revisions of the Coverdale Bible were made. The later became known as the Bishop's Bible, published in 1568. 
Yet it is evident that since Tyndale never finished his own Old Testament from Hebrew, and since Coverdale filled in those blanks from Latin, that this Bible was never really a unified effort. Therefore, when the first King James Version appeared, it could make the boast that it was newly translated out of the original tongues. Work on the King James began in 1604, and it was printed in 1611. The New Testament primarily employed Bees' edition of the Greek New Testament, but also consulted editions of Erasmus, Stephanus, and the Complutensian Polyglot, which was a multiple language translation. However, in great part, the King James was based on the English of the Bishop's Bible, which itself was based on Tyndale's work. They borrowed the language of Tyndale. Many defenders of the perceived divine inspiration of the King James, none of whom have any apparent care for what text the apostles themselves may have used, make their claims based upon emotional appeals and sentiment. They don't care that so many passages were added to the manuscripts over time. They don't care about the meanings of the original Greek words and the translational errors. They get their doctrine from bad manuscripts and bad translations. And they don't want to review those translations because they insist that their doctrine is correct and inspired, even though it was bad doctrine in the first place. They claim that the popularity of the King James is providential. And yet, they totally ignore the fact that once it was made, published and made, the official translation, all other English versions were banned by King James. So people had no choice but to use the official government version. And that is why it became so popular. The bottom line is this. Today, we have access to many ancient manuscripts. And they are better and much closer to the time of the apostles. And much better than those used to create the King James Version. And the same could be said about the Luther Version. We also have a better understanding of Greek, of history, and of the Bible through history. Therefore, if we ignore our obligation to God to prove all things, then are we not ignoring our obligation to God when, when, by not reconsidering the King James, along with other extant and ancient versions of scriptures, do we not have that obligation to examine the tools and resources that we have at our disposal today? Thank you. Hello, I'm Wolfgang. Hello. Can you hear me? 
Without the dog. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Chris's dog, yeah. Yeah, he comes in louder than anybody else in the room. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Can you hear me, Bill? Yes. <laughs> yes, Wolfgang. Okay. It was a very, very uh, illuminating talk, Bill. I really appreciate it very much. Because it shed some clarifying light on the Texas receptors. Um, so, as a summary, I'm a German. I'm not accustomed to the English uh, several versions of the Bible. Um, can you say something more about the Lutheran Texas receptors and other kind of German Bibles? Well, well you know, Luther basically. I'm not saying he wasn't a good man. He was an excellent man. However, he did not have the tools in the manuscripts and the original sources available to him that we have today. And, and we have an obligation to examine those tools and original sources which our God has made available to us. I agree on that. Um, so we are in Germany accustomed to the Elberfelder, to the Menge Bible, to, uh, of course, the Lutheran Bible, and uh, some revisions of that. Uh, can you give a recommendation, according to your knowledge, uh, what will be a, a translation which will fit your criteria you set, you set on? Well, well you know, I, I, I sincerely, I have full empathy for you. I really do. But I wish I knew German. I, I mean, <laughs> I read Greek and, and I read English, but that's my limitation. <laughs> I, I know a few Latin words, and, and I can't help one bit with German. I'm sorry. Even though my blood is German. The <laughs> Rhinelands. Yes. Very. Um, I, I just... Um, one more, one more word to uh, George Lamsa. You just mentioned he was a liar um, with his claim that the Ar Aramaic text uh, was the most ancient one. Yes, George Lamsa is a liar. <laughs> yes, I, I heard. Uh, I, I, I think he is a member of the Freemasons. Um, Freemasons. Um, let so let he, me say that. I've examined George Lamps's work. Some of his work is is good in regard to understanding some of the Hebrew idioms of the Old Testament. He's yeah. done very well in some areas, but he has a horse in the race. He's a native Aramaic speaker. He claims to be of original Assyrian stock. He's not truly of original Assyrian stock. The original Assyrians, you would not be able to distinguish them from an Englishman or a German. Oh, yeah. Okay? Lamza has Arab blood, but he has a personal stake being a native Aramaic speaker and, and thinking that the Bible was originally Aramaic. It was not. It's very clear when, when you are a reader of Greek, you, and, and when you see all the differences in all the ancient manuscripts, okay, all the differences are because of a typist error or, or because of a line left out by accident 
or a line added on purpose, which happens in some places. But the differences in the words throughout the manuscripts does not allow that they were taken from multiple translations from an original source. In other words, translating the Greek into English, we see all the differences in, in all the English English versions are very, very frequently, uh, there are billions of differences when six people sit and take a long text and translate it from English into German. All right? But when six people copy a text from English into English, there are very few differences. And all of the differences in the manuscripts do not allow for the fact that they may have been translated by different people from Aramaic. It's very clear that the original texts were all Greek. And, and there's much internal evidence that also proves they were Greek. Wherever Aramaic was used, we have a Greek interpretation, which would not be necessary if these were translations. Very, 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 uh, uh, very enlightening what you're saying. Uh, just another question. Uh, the parchment and the... the, the um, Parchment papyrus. Papyrus. Um, those who claim that the text of Receptus is very reliable say that um, although papyrus is not so endurable than uh, the, the skin of the deer, uh, they say it's really very, very thoroughly copied and therefore uh, the papyrus uh, versions are more reliable than those uh, being written upon some kind of uh, skin. In addition, there are those uh, uh, textus, uh, the, the Vaticanus or Sinaiticus, they should have some kind of Gnostic influence and be therefore un more unreliable than the, those uh, parch, uh, parch papyrus um, uh, versions. Well, well, the Codex Alexandrianus is, you know, the Codex Alexandrius, that's the Alexandrian tradition. And the modern King James agrees with that to a much greater degree than it agrees to with the Papyrus or with the Codex Vaticanus or with the Codex Sinaiticus. The King James usually follows the Codex Alexandrianus. And I can prove that clearly from the scripture. I have not released my translation notes yet. Hopefully I'll be able to release them in part next year for Paul and for Luke. Once you see my translation notes, you'll understand that the King James Version is very close to the Codex Alexandrinus. And that is the Codex which was most likely affected with Gnostic thinking. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuse me, Bill. Yes. Would, would you like to quickly plug your English translation of the New Testament? We've had a lot to take in, so I, I think our brains are beginning to get tired, but <laughs> you're, you're being too modest. You haven't mentioned that you've actually translated the full New Testament in English. Oh, Well, I don't. 
And I don't. I don't have to now. You did. <laughs> I have translated the New Testament into English. I'm sorry, I can't. I wish I could do it in German. I just can't. Um, I'm not that guy. Um, yeah, my my New Testament is available from Lulu.com, but it's also available freely on my website, Christagenia. Yeah. You can download the PDFs from my website. Very good. Thank you. Okay. Oh, we have you on the website. I get my my website gets um it's had it's had thousands of hits from Europe, thousands of visits from Europe, all over Europe. Any more questions? Someone having a burning question? No. We're out question. <laughs> well, that's okay. The um the paper that I prepared for today's presentation it will be on my website probably tomorrow. Oh, that's quick. This this yeah. This yeah. will be on my Yeah. We can download it tomorrow, probably. Yeah. I, I've been recorded that, Bill. Yes, the recording will be with it. Oh, it's really good. There you I'm, are. It's still recording. Yeah. <laughs> good. Okay. Well, well, thank you and, and praise Yahweh. Yeah, certainly. All blessings. And enjoy the balance of your weekend. Okay, you too. Okay, thanks.